These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we begin, Olivia, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? How has your week been? I'm doing really good. It's Nurses Week this week. Happy Nurses Week. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So it's been a good week. Lots of treats at work, you know. snacks (laughs) that's what they give us these days snacks um but it's been a good week nothing too busy going on uh mother's day is coming up so i'm gonna go visit my mother for mother's day and my little granny's turning 94 well snacks on snacks on snacks that is always nice i knew it was nurses appreciation week and i was waiting to record the episode to call it out so i'm glad it's been a good week i'm glad that you're getting to spend some time with some family and see your mom and your grandma that sounds awesome Yeah, 94 years old. Oh, and my little cousin's graduating high school. So it's a jam-packed weekend coming up. Well, congratulations, little cuz. Hopefully it's Mm -hmm. a wonderful graduation. Yeah, so lots to do. How was your week? Um, My week's been good, just working. We are going to be taking a vacation to Panama City here uh, in the next week or so. So just getting ready for that. And my wife and I's wedding anniversary is on Saturday. So going to let the kids sleep over at grandma's and we're going to get some dinner and just kind of hang out and stuff like that. So it'll be nice, nice little quiet weekend and just spending time getting ready. Nice. How many years have y'all been married? Seven years. 
Seven years. Yeah. You're going to make a baby, have another one? It's time. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I think my anniversary gift is going to be a vasectomy. So. <laughs> well, good. I'm excited you're getting a vacation and you're going to have an anniversary. All good things this weekend. I thought you were going to say, I'm excited you're getting a vasectomy, but you said vacation, pulled it out at the end. So I was yeah, like, yeah, all yeah. right. Vacation. Vacation. Well, Olivia, this week is your case. What have you brought for us? What are we going to be talking about? This week, I actually went with a Facebook suggestion. Stella and our Facebook group actually uh, mentioned that we check this case out. And she was convinced that it would be a 10 on the deadbolt scale. So I'm curious to see what you think and where our listeners rate this one on the deadbolt test. Well, shout out to Stella, first and foremost, for being in the Facebook group and suggesting a case. I'm really happy that we get to do a listener case. That always makes me feel good. And, you know, our listeners suggest so many things. It's nice to pick one out every once in a while. So thank you, Stella. And I'm really excited to get into it. I did take a little peek at your notes. I'm really excited to see what the listeners are going to think to have the discussion. So what do you think? Should we just jump into it? Yeah, let's get started. All right. On August 28, 2003, 27-year-old Michael Melton married the love of his life, 26-year-old Janelle. The pair had an intimate ceremony in Jamaica. Michael and Janelle originally met back in middle school in Trenton, New Jersey. They ran into each other again after college sometime around the year 2000. He was a counselor and she a teacher. Janelle was born July 17, 1976. She was vibrant and lit up every room she walked into. Janelle was passionate about her job. She loved teaching and was determined to make learning fun for her students. Michael was more chill and laid back. Both were social studies teachers at Red Bank Middle School. And John, for just a second, I think in most places this week is Teacher Appreciation Week. So I think we should shout out our teachers. I think you have teachers in your family. I have teachers in my family. Yeah, I definitely agree. Shout out to all the teachers. My mom is actually a parapro in Michigan, so she works with kids with autism and stuff like that. And if you are a teacher or if you are close to someone who's a teacher, I'm sure you know that it is a very thankless job with a lot of extra hours and just a lot of sweat and tears. And depending on your class, sometimes blood that goes into that job. So thank you so much for being willing to educate our students and our future adults in the United States here. Yes. And shout out to my sister. She's a teacher and a librarian. (laughs) Okay, we'll get back to the case. So both Janelle and Michael were very involved with school related activities. This meant the couple spent a lot of time together. Sadly, though, their marriage suffered, but not their friendship. Michael filed for divorce and both began seeing other people. Janelle moved out of their Eatontown apartment and into the Brighton Arms apartment complex in Neptune City. They spoke daily and continued to work well alongside each other. Michael claimed the divorce was his fault as he was more focused on himself than the relationship. On September 8, 2009, President Barack Obama addressed America's school children. Janelle and Michael planned to have their students join classes on Monday morning to watch the national address together. Now, on Monday, September 14, 2009, Michael started his class like normal. Later in the morning, he was asked by administrators to reach out to Janelle as she was tardy from school and didn't tell anyone of her absence. Michael called, but no response. He went to her apartment and found 33-year-old Janelle Melton on the floor of her bedroom, appearing lifeless. Michael immediately called 911. So, John, let's stop here for a minute and tell me what you're thinking. My immediate gut reaction is going to be that Michael had something to do with it. I don't know if that's actually the case, but that's what my gut is telling me because we do so many cases where there is a pending divorce and then a spouse kills another spouse and something of that nature. So that's my immediate reaction. But what's throwing me off is that 
they are such good friends, it seems mm-hmm. like, and they work together, like you would have to be on good terms to be able to continue a relationship like that. So I don't know. I'm interested to see where it goes. Now, EMS arrived roughly at 9.20 a.m. Sadly, Janelle was pronounced dead at the scene. Her apartment immediately became a crime scene, and police turned to the person who found her, Janelle's soon-to-be ex-husband, Michael Melton. Melton was taken in for questioning. He told police that he was watching the Giants versus Jets game that night before at a friend's house. He spoke with Janelle for about two minutes to discuss their upcoming joint class plans, and then Michael ended his night at his girlfriend's house. He told police all about their relationship and how despite their soon divorce, they still genuinely cared for one another. Melton provided a DNA sample and he was released. Now around 10.10 in the morning, while detectives interviewed Michael, forensic specialists arrived at Jonelle's apartment making note of the horrific scene and ransacked appearance. The kitchen cabinets were flung open and the refrigerator was rummaged through. Even the closets had been searched. It appeared that whoever killed Jonelle was clearly looking for something. She was brutally beaten and appeared to have been tortured, and the forensics teams determined that she was murdered the night before on September 13th. Injuries on her body suggested that she was beaten over a period of time before she was shot in the head, ultimately killing her. At this point, investigators believed that they were looking for two suspects, and given how physical the crime scene was, they were likely looking for men. Janelle's apartment was on the first of only two floors in the building. So like her apartment was, you know, those like smaller apartments that are only two stories and you can like, you have like a breezeway that you walk through and all the doors are on each side. Yeah. Yeah. And there might be like a stairwell every so many, you know, buildings or blocks. So that's basically what these apartments look like. They weren't tall, several floors. Yeah. That was like my apartment in Michigan. So it was kind of like an old hotel style where it was like a half a square, but there was a breezeway. You could walk like a sidewalk that walked in front of all of them and all the doors faced the sidewalk. So, yeah. So it was set up just like that. Okay, cool. Gotcha. Uh, crime scene investigators noted a side window to be open with a chair underneath inside in the kitchen. The chair had a slight footprint suggesting someone used it to climb inside. Taking a closer look, there was duct tape with blood stains near her body. They also discovered discarded latex gloves. Next to the chair under the window, investigators found a pink-colored lighter. They took notice that Janelle did not have any candles and was not a smoker, so it was unusual for someone to leave a lighter on the ground in the kitchen. At this point, the evidence collected was sent off for DNA testing. Meanwhile, police investigated Michael's alibi. His phone records proved that he was not near Janelle's apartment the night of the murder, and his girlfriend also confirmed that he was in fact at her house that evening. The last person to see Jonelle alive was her longtime friend and colleague, Tony Graham. Tony said that the two went to church and had dinner at her house. And according to Tony, Jonelle left around 9.30 p.m. Graham, of course, was not a suspect. Michael was not completely off the hook, but police began looking for other clues. As police continued the investigation, a news article was released on September 16th, just two days after Jonelle was murdered. The article was quoted as saying she was found dead and was estranged from her husband. Because of this, Michael felt as if he was still under investigation by police. During Janelle's funeral on September 21st, detectives gave their condolences, but they also asked friends and family about any details they may have. Michael felt afraid but continued to claim his innocence. On November 10th, 2009, DNA evidence from the duct tape was returned and showed two contributors of DNA. One sample matched Janelle and the other... Michael. Michael's friend was an attorney and quickly offered to represent him pro bono. He told detectives that when he arrived at Janelle's house, duct tape was stuck to his shoe. He claimed that he ripped it off and dropped it in the hallway. 
Now, with evidence pointing to Michael, the community began to turn against him. Detectives questioned residents at the apartment complex, but most turned a blind eye. As time moved on, DNA specialists were unable to lift a fingerprint from the used latex glove. They were able to have multiple contributors of DNA found on the pink lighter. However, no specific matches were able to be made. At this point, the CSI team sent the pink lighter off to New York for more extensive DNA extraction. These results could take months to years to process. Meanwhile, Michael struggled with severe depression and even contemplated suicide. He turned to alcohol to cope, and he felt ashamed and judged in the community. Now later in 2012, DNA evidence came back on the pink lighter from one contributor, Gregory Jean-Baptiste. And on December 3rd, 2012, Baptiste was brought in for questioning. Now, you saw that we jumped from 2009 to 2012. Yeah, so it looks like it did take a few years for that DNA evidence to come back, which is kind of crazy to think, especially when it's like someone's been murdered. It's like, oh, we'll get back to you in two years. Yeah, I just wanted to make a note that we're jumping two years now. Yeah, that's nuts. Now, Baptiste claimed that he did not know who Jonelle was and that he had never been to her apartment. Police told Baptiste that they found something in her apartment with his DNA on it, but he continued to claim his innocence and quickly became agitated. Eventually, Baptiste stopped answering questions. Detectives knew that Baptiste was their primary suspect, but placing his lighter at Jonelle's was not enough evidence to convict him of murder, and sadly, the case went cold. All right, John, I'm going to check back in. So originally I thought that Michael would have something to do with it. But when we talk about him turning to alcohol and when we talk about him like dealing with depression and things like that, unless it is guilt over something that he's done, doesn't really signal to me someone who would have murdered someone. Seems more like he's going through a really hard time because the community has kind of turned against him where there's something up with this Baptiste guy. So again, I'm not ruling it out completely just based on where we are in the story, but I'm shifting focus a little bit from Michael. I think Baptiste may be the the guy we need to focus on. Now, Michael continued to have a difficult time within the community and needed to find answers to what happened to Janelle. He reached out to a friend to ask around the neighborhood for any leads. In the meantime, Neptune police assigned the cold case to two narcotic police officers, hoping to offer a new set of eyes. It was at this point that the case was reopened. Michael received information from a source that said gang members were involved in the murder of Jonelle. According to the source, members of the Bloods gang were actually looking for David James, or Munch, as people on the streets would call him. Munch was a local drug dealer in town. One night while out, a man named James Fair overheard a discussion about Munch having copious amounts of drugs and $15,000 cash in his house. Fair told his three friends and they formulated a plan to rob Munch. At this point, detectives checked into this story, and they ultimately found it a likely possibility. Now, David James, or Munch, lived directly next door to Jonelle, and detectives were starting to piece a storyline together. Looking at the crime scene and the nature of the murder, police believed that these men could have thought that Jonelle was Munch's girlfriend. Again, detectives began questioning the community. A reliable informant that worked with the Neptune Police Department gave them the names of three men she claimed killed Jonelle Melton. She also mentioned a fourth suspect, a woman. Ebenezer Bird, Gregory Jean-Baptiste, and Jerry Spraulding. Detectives immediately began to dig into their suspects' backgrounds. All three suspects belonged to the Bloods gang, and Bird was the ringleader of their group. When police initially questioned the suspects, they all denied their involvement. However, police knew if they could find out who the fourth suspect was, they could hopefully find some answers. Now, luckily, police received a call from a woman in 2015 named Narika Scott. Scott was a girlfriend to Ebenezer Bird, 
and her father encouraged her to speak with the police. Nervously, she told detectives that during a prison visit, Bird confessed to her that he, Jean-Baptiste, and Spraulding were all involved in the murder of John L. Melton. When police pried more about if she knew who the woman was, Scott quickly replied, Elizabeth Pinto. Detectives quickly set out to find Elizabeth Pinto and bring her to discuss what happened years ago on September 13, 2009. She looked terrified and tearful. She teetered on giving police the answers they were searching for. Eventually, Pinto confessed to driving the car on the night of Janelle's murder. She also shared with police that she was dating Bird at the time. Pinto told detectives that she met the three men at Bird's mother's house before setting out for the night. Pinto claimed she was oblivious to what they were doing, but was instructed to drive and park at a corner close to the Brighton Arms apartment. Throughout the interview, she remained tearful and very apologetic. She showed detectives the exact location she parked. She also shared that all three men were wearing latex gloves. She agreed to testify against the men and pled guilty to conspiracy. Police were able to review phone records and determined that all three suspects were in the area of Janelle's apartment the night of the murder. For the prosecution, this was enough evidence to make a case. And arrest warrants were issued for Ebenezer Bird, Gregory Jean-Baptiste, and Jerry Spraulding. However, all three suspects were already in jail for unrelated charges. The trial began on January 17, 2019, nine years and four months after the murder of Janelle Melton. At trial, the prosecution laid out the events that took place on September 13, 2009. They explained to the jury that after Pinto parked, all three men approached the apartment. It was at that point that Jean-Baptiste climbed through the kitchen window where he dropped the pink lighter. He opened the sliding glass door to let Bird and Spraulding into Janelle's home. It was then that all three men found Janelle in her bedroom. They proceeded to hold her down, tie her up as they ransacked the apartment. They looked through cabinets, drawers, closets, and even the freezer, but found no money and no drugs. The prosecution argued that it was at this point the three men realized they had the wrong apartment and made the choice to execute Janelle Melton. And testimony from Elizabeth Pinto helped to seal the deal. A jury found Bird, Jean-Baptiste, and Spraulding guilty of first-degree felony murder and robbery, second-degree conspiracy, burglary, and weapons charges on March 20, 2019. This was actually the same day as Michael Melton's birthday. On May 23, 2019, Jerry Spraulding was sentenced to life in prison. Gregory Jean-Baptiste received the same sentence on May 30, 2019. As for Ebenezer Bird, he was already serving a 12-year prison sentence for two unrelated shootings in October of 2009, where he was convicted of attempted murder. He, too, received a sentence of life in prison for Johnnell Melton's murder. Additionally, in 2019, James Fair was found guilty for conspiracy to commit burglary as he helped create the plan to rob Munch. He's currently serving 82 years in prison for his role in Johnnell's murder, along with 78 other charges. Now, Fairs continued to deny any involvement in the actual murder, and he's eligible for parole in 2065. Michael Melton is now sober and spends time working in the community and leading a youth basketball program. In an interview, Michael said, Now my life is really not about me anymore. It's about working for the community and trying to help save people's lives. That's what gives me the peace and motivation I have each day. I was given a second chance, so I have to do the best I can with the gifts I've gotten. And that's it, John. Man, I was so wrong. Yeah. Like in the beginning, I was like, it's definitely Michael. And then seeing what he went through and the way that he bounced back and kind of was able to recover from that, I feel terrible for thinking that it was him. I'm like, oh, I'm like part of the community. Like I just immediately assumed that it was him. 
Yeah. And like they were both school teachers. And, you know, I feel like that's a hard time. Like it was to the point where like he couldn't be around the students, but they would have him do other like desk work. And I think he suffered a lot more than I told in the story as far as like his struggle with alcoholism and how deep the depression got. But, you know, I, I feel like Michael, you know, they always look at spouses first. No, you're right. I think he was a victim of protocol, right? Because it does happen so often that the original protocol is like, okay, well, if the spouse is murdered, we immediately look at the other spouse, right? And like I said, we do so many of these cases where it's a wife killing a husband or a husband killing a wife or something like that, where it's like, that's just where your mind goes. Because nine out of 10 times, you're going to be like, oh yeah, it was the, you know, the person that you most likely suspect is the person that did it. You know, it's rough. I can definitely see too, if, you know, you have this passion for teaching and I mean, now he runs a youth basketball program. So like kids are definitely important to him and the community is important to him. And then because someone is falsely accusing you of something like you can't participate in this thing that drives you as a human being, that's got to be insanely tough. So I really feel for him. That's I mean, this is awful. Yeah. And this one over the course of nine years, that's a whole decade just about that. The family suffered. Michael suffered. You know, and these guys were, you know, thankfully in prison for other things. So not out there murdering other people. But like she lost her life over fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. And it's just like terrifying to think that you're at home in your apartment, like someplace that you're supposed to feel safe. Yeah. Like getting ready for bed. Yeah. And then there's just three guys in your apartment. Mm -hmm. You know, she sounded like she had the same kind of passion, right? Like wanted to make learning fun, cared about what she did, cared about her students. And even when we talk about the relationship, like, yeah, the marriage didn't work, but that doesn't mean I think less of you or anything like that. Like, you know, we can still have a friendship and be close. Like maybe, you know, we're not made to be married, but we have a very healthy friendship, you know, which is very rare. So Mm -hmm. it's just sad all the way around. Like this person lost their life for no reason. And then, you know, Michael's life is ruined as part of the fallout from that. It's just, you know, it's just terrible. It's a sad case. It was very interesting when even when I was researching it to just be like, oh, my gosh, that could happen to anybody that can literally happen to anybody. Well, and that's why I'm interested to talk about the deadbolt test, because as we were going through this, I was thinking about it. So I don't know if you want to dive into that. I have my answer ready. All right, go. For me, this is a 10. This is like my biggest fear. It's just the random I'm at home. I'm brushing my teeth. I'm getting ready. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, it's my house at this time. And it seems like, you know. It happened so fast that even if she had a plan to protect herself or something like that, like once they're just in your house, there's nothing that she could do. And to know that these guys thought that they were breaking into her neighbor's house, you know, just the complete randomness of it. And like, I don't know, it just gets under my skin. So for me, I'm putting this at a 10, most definitely. What about you? Yeah, I think I'm going to rate it like a 10 as well. And I'm going to go back to a place of like, okay, yes, this was a young woman, 33 years old, that's my same age, um, who was living alone and was finishing up her evening with her friend, getting herself ready for bed. And the next thing you know, she's tied up, being tortured, and then ultimately killed. And I go back to when they talk about how they continue to ask the community, and I can't quite figure out the community in which they lived in, because she's living next door to a drug dealer. I don't know who all my neighbors are, but I do see some sketchy things in my neighborhood every now and then. And I was on a trial for my murder court when I was on the jury and the community wouldn't answer questions when the police came around because they were so afraid of retaliation. 
And the people who testified against, you know, the guy in the murder trial that I sat on, you know, they just try to discredit the witnesses because of them being involved in selling drugs and doing stuff like that. So I can't get an idea if the community wasn't answering because they were afraid of those things or if the community genuinely just was like, I don't know. I couldn't really tell from research. And so to me, it's very scary that it's random. But the other thing is like, did she know if her neighbor was a drug dealer? I don't know. I kind of go all around in this whole case because I, I mean, I, I, I just don't know how it took police nine years to figure this out. Well, I can tell you where I lived at in Michigan was a affluential suburb. There was areas that were middle class, but there was a lot of areas that were like upper class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had to have money to live in some of the places near where I grew up. The city that I lived in was a nice city and I lived right next door in that apartment I was talking about earlier, right mm-hmm. next door to me, I had a drug dealer who lived next to me and we were friends, but mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, uh, you know, I never worried. It's not anything that ever crossed my mind that like somebody would try to rob him and accidentally come into my apartment. Right. You know? I mean, that's like putting, yeah, that's like, that could have happened to you, John. Yeah. And that's the thing too. It's like, even if she knew it's like in the nicest neighborhoods in the nicest area in the country, there is one house in that neighborhood that is definitely selling drugs. Just, you know, if it's a nicer neighborhood, sometimes it tends to be a little bit more upscale. You know what I mean? But if you live in a home that's, you know, 1.2, 1.5, $2 million in a neighborhood of homes like that, you best believe there is somebody in that neighborhood who's got some cocaine that they are selling out of their house. Maybe not to the whole neighborhood, maybe not to the whole community, but they got some friends who were coming by and they're like, Hey, you want some of this for sure. Cause it just happens everywhere. You know, it's just yeah. the, the culture that we live in. I don't know. It's just crazy to think that, you know, like I said, you could just be home and because somebody thinks your house is a certain house, you know, all of a sudden you're like looking at your last moments. It's crazy. Well, that is where we fall in the deadbolt test for this week's episode. Olivia and I unanimously, we're both giving it a 10, but as always, we want to know, where does the murder of Janelle Melton fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know by reaching out to us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? That's the whole reason that we did this case this week is because someone in our Facebook group suggested it. So again, huge thank you. We love getting to interact with you, getting to know you. It's our favorite thing about doing this podcast. Olivia, I know I usually make puns, but this case definitely got under my skin and I just don't think I have one for it. So I need a palate cleanser. I need to get this taste out of my mouth. You got a five-star review for us. I'm sad you don't have a pun this week, John, but I do indeed have a five-star review. And this week it comes from Pam A. And Pam said, John and Olivia take no-nonsense approach to researching and presenting these true crime cases. I've been hooked and checking and rechecking my logs since I started listening. Keep up the great work. So thank you, Pam A. And I'm pretty sure this might be Pam Armstrong, if I had to take a guess. I am guessing it is Pam. I would. We, Pam is a huge supporter of our podcast. She's a member of the Patreon family. She's very active in the Facebook group. So I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that it is Pam. Uh, and Pam, thank you so much for taking the time. This review is really something that we could munch on. Ooh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I like what you did there. There it is. Threw it in. 
Pam and everyone else who's listening and left a review. We have busy lives. These are busy days. We have kids, we have families, all sorts of stuff. So the fact that you took a couple of minutes out of your day, left us that review really does mean the world. We would love to send you some goodies. Make sure that you're reaching out to us again. That's Instagram, check the locks pod. You can find us on Twitter, check the locks. If you're in our Facebook group, which I'm pretty sure that you are, you can also send us a direct message there. We would love to get you some stuff out. I know Olivia just got some new stickers that came in today. I have some coming in. UPS lost mine, but they're coming back in. We'd love to get you some some goodies sent out. And Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? They need to go to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll all the way down where you see all five stars, click all five stars. Leave us just a little review, something nice, something sweet, something to brighten our day and tell us what you think about Check the Locks. Exactly what Olivia said. And I know we talk about this every week, but there is a reason that we talk about this every week. These reviews really help us. They get us in front of a larger audience. They help bring more people into our community. Just let more people find the show, right? That's how we get into recommends and things of that nature. So if you have left us a review, thank you so much for doing that. Again, it means the world. If you haven't, exactly what Olivia said, hop on over to Apple Podcasts. And if you need a cheat code, you can go into the description of this episode and click the link there. We'll take you right there so you can leave that review. And speaking of supporting Check the Locks, as always, we have a Patreon. So if you want to help us keep the lights on, you want to financially support us, the Patreon is the best way to do that. Again, shout out Pam for being the OG patron. (laughs) She was patron number one before we even told anybody about it. She found it on the internet, which was amazing. It really helps us invest in things, new microphones, better quality equipment, all sorts of stuff so that we can make sure that the show is sounding as good as possible and keeping up that quality. So if you want to help us, head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. You can sign up today. You get the episodes early. You get them ad free. We got a bunch of cool stuff like stickers, T-shirts, coffee mugs, all sorts of stuff just for being a patron. So check it out if you do want to help us financially. And if you can't support us financially, that is totally fine. Just listening and sharing the show with your friends means just as much, if not more. So if you are one of those people, you're telling your friends about us, you're sharing those links on social media, you're listening every week, just know that we appreciate you more than we could ever put into words. Thank you so much for all that you do to help us grow. Just means absolutely the world to us. That is all that we have for this week's case, but please make sure that you're subscribed to Check the Locks on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Shorty got them. Apple bottom jeans. See ya.